The impact of the gospel in the lives God has placed around us is not dependent upon our great skill at communicating or our ability to frame gospel arguments. All that is needed for the gospel to begin working in their lives is to have it simply expressed to them. Don't put more pressure on yourself than you need to. If you know how to share the gospel with a little child, you know enough to share it with anyone. Hello, I'm Joe Van Hoogen, and this is the Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its associate fellowship, the Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. We're in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We have on our lips a power greater than has been wielded by any nation at any time in the world. That power is the gospel. From the lips of babes just like us, a revolution of life can begin. You can make the gospel known and speak it to a person, and just that word in itself, in its message, carries to the person you're speaking to a power that comes from God and not from yourself and from your abilities. You believe that? Can you imagine that if that's true? Imagine what a weapon you have to tear down spiritual barriers and walls, and lives that can be changed. One of the great stories I remember, I'm going to get this wrong, but my parents were pastors in Skykomish, Washington, and, and not far from where they lived. Friends had like a little retreat that was busy during the summertime. People from back east used to come and stay at their retreat during the summertime. They had a gentleman who came out from the east, and he was a teacher, and he was spending his three months of vacation at this site, this place. Also, in this retreat center they had set up, they had a young man who was mentally handicapped. And this young man was sharing a room with the man, the teacher, because it was all that they had left for him. And so they had a mentally handicapped young man who was doing little chores, and they were taking care of him, and he lived with his teacher. But this little mentally handicapped man also believed in Jesus and prayed to him. And he knew the simple expressions of the gospel. And by the end of that summer, that teacher invited Christ to come in his life and be a savior because of the witness of that mentally handicapped young man. It wasn't in the power of that young man. It was the gospel that's powerful, tremendously powerful. The simplest and seemingly least persuasive person can bear great evangelistic fruit if they will only tell others in simple words the gospel. The gospel. I'll give you a little recommendation uh, just to make it simple for you. Maybe you get one of those little bracelets. Have you ever seen it? They've got the different colors on it. You can wear that share the gospel with somebody in simple little expression. The black expresses the sin that we've committed against God. The red expresses the blood that the Lord Jesus shed, dying for our sins. The white is how he cleanses us and washes us completely. The green expresses how he wants us to grow and develop. The gold expresses the glory in the heaven that he's planning for us. Just a simple little thing, a simple little guide. You use it in daily vacation Bible school for little children. It's all you need to know is the gospel well enough to share it with a little child. It has power, it has tremendous power. And then you've got to share it with others. You've got to believe that it's not in your performance. It's not in your expressions. It's in the gospel itself. That's what he says. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Here's another observation. Paul is squaring off against and boasting in this statement against Rome itself. 
He's writing those at the capital of the Roman Empire. And if there's one thing the people of Rome knew, they knew that this was the center of world power. The Roman Empire's history is a history of conquest and battle and expanding power. They had gathered together the, the wisdom of all the ancient world and they'd drawn it together into a pragmatic implementation of power and they'd imposed it on one kingdom after another kingdom so that the Greeks fell before them, the Carthaginians fell before them, the Gauls fell before them, and on and on and on and on. Rome was above everything an iron fist that had grabbed hold of all the nations. Paul is saying in the presence of this great power, and they knew the word power, that there was a power that was greater than the power of Rome. That with all the power that Rome had, and with all the power that Rome had expressed, it had no power to bring salvation to a single soul, or to save one single individual. This power belonged to the gospel of Jesus Christ and God alone. And get this, our lost situation and sin is so deep and dire that no power on earth can deliver us from it. In fact, for us to be saved, God has to release upon us his own great power in the gospel. Salvation is not a small thing. It's not a trifle. It is the expression of God's power brought to bear in the heart and soul of a man. The Greeks with all their philosophies, the Jews with all their laws, with all the applications of their philosophy, with all the implementation of their laws, had accomplished the salvation of not one single human being in all of the human race. For that to happen, the power of God had to be released. And that's where the gospel is. Today, we're getting ready to celebrate the 4th of July and the birth of our nation. And it's right for us to celebrate our nation, and we should be thankful for it. We're also concerned with where our nation is heading. and We rightly can say that God has raised it up in a wonderful way to be a force of good throughout the nation with all our flaws and with all our problems. God has used our nation in a wonderful way. But in all that our nation has done to benefit the nations of the earth, and to be a blessing to the nations of our earth, it has not brought salvation to one single person on the face of this earth. It can't. That's done by the gospel alone. What does it tell us? That our allegiance above everything else has to be to this gospel. It's the gospel that we are to, above everything else, swear our allegiance to. Here's a third observation. Paul is going to unfold what he means by the word salvation. What I want you to note here is that this idea or concept of salvation or being saved is not a hard concept to grasp. It's Meaning is to some extent known by everyone. It doesn't matter what culture you go into, where you might travel on the earth. When you get to this idea of speaking about, use whatever their language is, they all know what salvation means. They all know what it means because salvation basically means to be rescued from disease or death or destruction. And its emphasis is not only on being rescued from something, but it's also an emphasis on the hands that reach out to draw you into the rescue. It's the thing that rescues you and they know that every nation knows this. I actually think the reason that we understand the concept of salvation so well is because it really is quite a childlike concept. It's something that is known by children. In fact, if you think about it, when you were a little child, every single day was a day of rescue. Every single day was a day of salvation. You were rescued from an all-consuming hunger that was about ready to destroy you, and you screamed at the top of your lungs because if you didn't get food, you were going to die, and... Your mother took you and nursed you and you were rescued every day by her. And, 
and you were in calamitous places where you were hurtling through space and falling and your father's arm reached out to grab you and you were rescued. And as a little boy, I, I knew what it was like to be lost multiple times and I knew what it was like to be found multiple times. And I'll tell you, the being lost part was horrible. The being found part was wonderful. Child knows these concepts. Their very existence demands daily saviors to rescue them. And in all this, God is preparing their hearts for an ultimate salvation, from an ultimate fall, to feed an ultimate hunger, and to bring you in the arms of the ultimate Savior. It's not hard to understand. It's part of life. And that salvation is being pressed upon us as well by the Holy Spirit who is preparing us. That Holy Spirit is convincing us of our sin, and He's convincing us of our lack of righteousness, and He's convincing us of impending judgment as a result and these things stir within us a recognition of our need our need to be saved William Hendrickson gives us a brief description of what salvation is and what Paul is going to reveal to us and how Paul brings and helps us to consider what salvation is and he's going to give us the negative side and he's going to give us the positive side and here's the negative side and we should know all these things but this is how we refresh ourselves in the gospel the deliverance that God brings us or saves us to is a, a deliverance negatively from a rescue from the guilt of sin. The guilt of sin. We all know this. We know times when we felt guilty. We've all had the little voice that says inside of us, you did it. You did it. You did it. You know it. And God rescues us from that guilt, but it's not just guilt before ourselves. It's not guilt standing before our conscience. It's a guilt that's indicated and spoken to us by God the Spirit himself who's making known to us our sin. And God rescues us from our guilt, but he not only rescues us from our guilt, he rescues us from the very pollution of sin. He washes our conscience so we're free, although the fact still stands of the sins we've committed, we don't bear, in a sense, its defilement anymore. It's removed from us. It doesn't weigh upon our conscience. This is a wonderful thing. There are individuals who have created some great sin and maybe they've experienced some resolution, but it always weighs against them with profound and tremendous regret. When you hear an individual tell you that they have no regrets in their life, they're lying. Either that or they're sociopaths, right? Something's wrong. I know that, but this is the tremendous thing. God can come and he can wash us and cleanse us and he can forgive us and in that moment there's a memory of the sin but instead of this great profound sense of regret or a great sense that there's this unfilled space in our life or this outstanding defilement in our life, there's a sense of great rejoicing. So when Paul says that he's the chief of sinners, he's not saying it beating his breast anymore. He's saying, I was the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. But he's not saying, oh, God, be merciful to me because God has been merciful to him and God has forgiven him. The thought of it only caused him to rejoice that he's been delivered and released from the condemnation of that sin so that he can write later, there is no condemnation, as we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's being delivered from the pollution and the defilement of sin. And then there's the rescue from the slavery of sin. Sin takes a hold of us and it doesn't let us go. It gets a hold of us and it works within us and it puts its tendril around our hearts. I spoke to a young man some years back who shared how he had got engaged in a certain sin in his life and he was able to manage that sin for a number of years, but then all of a sudden everything turned on him and the sin that he was managing and it was somehow working for him 
began to work against him and took control of him. And then he had no power to get free from it. None whatsoever. Well, that's a picture of what sin does. The Bible says that the God of this age also holds us in chains because he holds us by the power of our own sins. And he uses it to manipulate us and control us and bring us into bondage. And not all of your promises to be better the next time, not all of your efforts will ultimately free you from the chains of your sin, but you're rescued from the chains, the bondage of your sin. You're also rescued from its punishment. That punishment is described to us in the Bible. It's a punishment of alienation from God. Our sins separate us from God. So Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And that's a picture of those who are outside of faith in Jesus Christ. It's the spiritual condition of all people. Their sin has created upon them a separation from God. So we're delivered from the punishment of sin. And the first punishment is alienation from God. And then we're delivered from the wrath of God against sin. His antagonism towards sin. And We might say that God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. But actually, the Bible says that God kind of hates the sinner too. Sin has so embroiled itself and connected itself to him, it's so indelibly lit up into our lives and our souls and our very beings and our spirits that makes us the objects of his wrath. The Bible says that. It's a part of what sin brings to us. And when we're saved, God saves us. God delivers us from himself and his own wrath. Thanks for listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. I want to extend to you a welcome to join our worship every Sunday at 11 a.m. in the Old White Church at 1023 East State Street in the Warm Springs area of Boise. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org and follow the links. Until the next time, may God bless you.